Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. To finish up chapter 2, our context is this. Chapter 1, in chapter 1, Paul talked about Christ being, well, excuse me, not chapter 1. Let's, the first part of chapter 2, Paul talked about Christians being alive to Christ, dead to the to the to their old nature, their old man. In chapter one, Paul talked about the preeminence of Christ and how Christ was filled up with all the fullness of the Godhead of God. And then in chapter the first part of chapter two he talks about Christians being filled with Christ, so therefore we have we share in all the characteristics of God because of Jesus living in us. And then we go to verse sixteen, Paul says, Therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Well, the immediate context of the therefore, what the there is therefore, is since the certificate of debt has been canceled, because in the previous section, Paul is talking about how Jesus is the answer for our sins, not legalism, not anything else. And so he's going to more particularly focus on the worthlessness of legalism in the last part of the chapter. He's already said in the previous few verses in Colossians 2 that the certificate of debt had been canceled, had been nailed to the cross, the debt consisting of ordinances that were against us and in opposition to us. Basically, the note that I had to write to God says, I owe you my life, God, because of the sins I've committed. And God says, I cancel your note. You're free. So since you're complete in Christ, then you don't need to try to play God with all your legalism. Eating shrimp, but not eating shrimp. Oh, God's going to love me for that, that kind of thing. So when Paul says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you, he's talking about the Colossian heretics who were Judaizing legalists. They put their Jewish legalism, mixed it in with some Oriental Gnosticism, the idea that you have to have secret knowledge in order to get to God, and they have created a perfect mess, a perfect heretical mess, which both of which philosophies alienated one from Christ and deprecated Christ and made him inferior either to legalistic regulations or inferior to angels that you had to go through with your secret knowledge in order to get to God. All of that stuff is who Paul is fighting. And so now he particularly aims at the legalism. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink. Christians were free to eat things labeled unclean by the Mosaic Law. They could eat shrimp. They could eat pork. They did not have to attend the three great festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They did not have to celebrate the monthly new moon. They could do what they wanted to on a Sabbath day. Now, when Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink and festivals and Sabbath days, that obviously refers to the ceremonial law of Moses. Now, John Gill says that shows that we are free from the ceremonial law. But I'm telling you, in my humble opinion, the New Testament clearly says we are free from the law of Moses, period, civil, ceremony, and moral. And the moral part of the law of Moses has been replaced by the higher moral law of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. That's New Covenant theology as opposed to Covenant theology. I won't get into that, but I will say this. We don't we don't need to have anyone regarding us to what we eat or drink because it's in the Mosaic Law, obviously. But how about doubtful things like eating, eating idle meat? And, of course, that's not doubtful for us today, but there are other doubtful things. We don't need people judging us for that. But the Paul clearly, clearly tells us, what is it, 1 Corinthians 8? Don't let anybody judge you. If somebody has a weak conscience about something, they've got no business judging somebody with a strong conscience. So no, we don't need. You shouldn't allow people to judge you in regard to what you eat or drink. Now you shouldn't make people stumble either. 
if, if you know eating pork is going to offend somebody, well, then don't eat pork. But in general, don't let somebody judge you for eating pork if you're doing it in the privacy of your home. Now, these regulations that they are talking about here, that Paul is talking about, is much more than just the law of Moses. I'm sure, they, as we'll see, they added on a bunch of things to the law of Moses to make the legalism even more onerous to the practicing Christian. Now, let's look at this particular prohibition against judgment about someone who wants to not recognize a Sabbath day. Now, this has a lot of application for the present day because there are a lot of people out there who are Sabbath keepers, and they tell people like me that I'm a Sabbath breaker. Now, this idea of Sabbath keeping comes from covenant theologians who say that the law of Moses is eternal all the way till the end of time. Let me give you an example. Here's Adam Clark, although he's not a covenant theologian, but he expresses the same idea. He says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a command of perpetual obligation and can never be superseded but by the final termination of time, as it is a type of that rest which remains for the people of God of an eternity of bliss. It must continue in full force till that eternity arrives. For no type ever ceases till the antitype become. Well, now, I have a, this is what I would say if Dr. Clark was around me today. I would say, well, when did the antitype come? I thought the antitype came when Jesus came. I thought that the new covenant was the fulfillment of that Sabbath rest. We enter into the rest. What is it, Hebrews 4? Don't hesitate to enter into the rest. That means when I believe in Jesus, not at the end of the world. So when I believe in Jesus, that's the end of the Sabbath, because Jesus is my Sabbath. He is my rest. It could be in general when Jesus came and established the new covenant, or you might want to say when the individual Christian accepts Christ, then the rest comes. But at any rate, it's not the end of the world. The Sabbath is not in effect. It's not eternal. I don't care what Adam Clark says. In fact, Adam Clark is in danger of judging believers the same way the Colossian heretics did, by saying, you need to keep the Sabbath. And let me point out to you that most covenant theologians, what do they do on Sunday? Well, if they're preachers, they work on Sunday harder than they work any other day of the week, which means they're breaking the Sabbath. And not only that, the Sabbath that Moses talked about was on Saturday, not Sunday. And not only that, this, this scripture right here says, don't judge me in regard to Sabbath. Well, it says, don't let anyone judge you in the matter of a Sabbath day, Colossians 2.16. Well, if you're going to say that we have to keep the Sabbath today, and Paul says, don't let anybody judge you for not keeping a Sabbath day, well, it seems to me that covenant theologians have got a big problem here. Well, here is one way they try to avoid the force of this prohibition of judging people who don't keep the Sabbath. They say that this is a reference to the Feast of Weeks. It's not the weekly Sabbath. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The weekly Sabbath rests on a more permanent foundation, having been instituted in paradise to commemorate the completion of creation in six days. Leviticus 23.38 expressly distinguished the Sabbath of the Lord from other Sabbaths. So... So this is, this is the hair-splitting distinction that these Christian pronomian legalists, if I can use a, a made-up pejorative term, this is what they say concerning this Sabbath day that we're not supposed to let anybody judge us by. That's one of the festival, the Sabbath days that are that are associated with the festivals, like the you know the Passover Sabbaths, one before and one after. If you read in the Old Testament laws, they don't necessarily fall on Saturday. It depends on when the festival falls. No. It says, hey, don't let anybody judge you on a Sabbath day. 
Well, we got to make exceptions because we got to keep the essential businesses open, the pharmacies and the doctors. What happens if somebody gets in a car wreck on Sunday? Well, I'm sorry, hospital's closed on Sunday. And not only that, how do you keep the Sabbath? Is watching a football game, it's not working, but it's not honoring God either. So, I mean, you know. And then so then, and in fact, if you look at the average Sabbath keeper, they don't keep the Sabbath. They don't even agree with one another on what keeping the Sabbath is. Just go around and ask Presbyterians, do you keep the Sabbath? How do you keep it? Some of them watch football. Some of them will play croquet. Some of them will play volleyball. Some of them will sit at home with the shade shuttered. You just don't know. The whole thing is a legalistic ball of mess. And besides, the early church met on Sunday for all the way up to the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century A.D. because they had to work on Sunday. It was That was the law in the Roman Empire. We go to Colossians 2.17. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. These what? These regulations about food and drink and festivals on the Sabbath day. These are a shadow. Well, actually, it's not the regulations, but it's the, the, the festival days. The festivals and the Sabbath day, as, and I don't know about the food and the drink, but at least the festivals and the Sabbath day are shadows of what is to come. Now, of course, a shadow is the same thing as a type. A shadow doesn't exhibit the real substance of something. That's a great contrast. The Hillman Christian Study Bible puts it this way. A shadow is opposed to the substance. The shadow is the festival. For example, the Passover. Well, that's the shadow, the substance of that is the Messiah, the Passover lamb that's eaten. Well, that's the shadow. That's the symbol. That's the pattern. And then the Messiah, he's the real thing. Why would you want to focus on the shadows when you got the substance? And that's what, of course, they were doing. Hebrews 8, 5, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's He's talking about the regulations about building the temple. Or he was talking about the the built the the earthly temple. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, "Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain." So yeah, the holy of holies. What is you know that's the throne room of God. In the holy place, you got the candlestick. That's the light of the world. That's the shadow of Jesus. And the bread of life there is in the holy place. All those are shadows. But hey, why worry about bread and candlesticks when you got the real thing, when you got Jesus? Hebrews 10.1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Of course, the great shadow is the, the sacrifices. Those were the shadow of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the reality. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, if we are bound by the shadow, we fail to recognize that the fulfillment has come. The shadows were symbolic of what Jesus was going to bring. bring. A shadow is not substantial. It's not solid. It's not firm. But Jesus is. Now, when Paul says in verse 17 of Colossians 2 that these festivals and Sabbaths and so forth are a shadow of what was to come, when is the to come? It's the New Covenant era of the church. It's not talking about a shadow of what's to come in the final state, but it's of the New Testament church. Ephesians 2.7 says this, So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages, does that refer to the end of the world? He's going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace? No, it means now he's shown us the immeasurable riches of his grace by forgiving us of our sins. Here's Hebrews 2.5 in the Montgomery New Testament translation. It is not to angels that God subjected the age to be of which we are speaking. 
I know the words God subjected the age to be. That was the age that the Christians were in then at the, the time that he, the author of Hebrews was writing. The age to come after the pre-Messianic age. The age Paul talked about on us whom the ends of the ages have come. The end of the pre-Messianic age, the Jewish order, and now the New Covenant order, the order of Jesus, the age of Jesus. The substance of that age is the Messiah. The fulfillment of all those shadows in the Old Testament age is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. He fulfills all those shadows. So why are you focusing on the old when the new is here? We go to Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. Disqualified you means to fraud you of your prize. This is an allusion to the Olympic Games. Paul loves to refer to the Olympic Games all the way through his letters. You get disqualified in a race, you, you don't have a chance of winning, do you? So Paul is saying, look, these ascetic legalist Judaizers, they're going to disqualify you from winning the prize of Jesus Christ. Because you can't have it both ways. You either have Jesus or you have the asceticism and the legalism. Let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices. Now, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation for ascetic practices. Other translations have it this way. New American Standard Bible and the New American Bible has self-abasement. The NIV in the Montgomery translation says false humility, insisting on false humility. Now, the Mace New Testament New Te uh, translation has affection of humility, and the Weymouth translation has priding himself on his humility. So it sounds like a false humility that... that is the idea of the Greek here. Well, what does that mean, false humility? Well, it's because you're proud about your humility. Look at me, how humble I am. I haven't eaten in t five days. My ribs are sticking out. I got holes in my back from the hair shirt I'm wearing, and I got whip marks, lash marks all down my back because I've been whipping myself. Look how humble I am. Remember that old Mac Davis country song years ago? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. So that's probably what Paul is talking about false humility. It could be that Paul is saying that these heretics are worshiping angels because they've made it God out to be so holy that worshipers can only humbly worship his created angels. In other words, they're saying, we're not so arrogant as we're going to worship the, the ultimate true supreme God. That's too arrogant to do that. So we're going to worship his angels, his created angels. And Adam Clark says there is some evidence that some Jews also did worship angels. Well, worshiping angels saying that you're humble because you're worshiping angels rather than worshiping God is nothing but arrant stupidity. Well, if ascetic practices has the idea of false humility in it, fine. If it doesn't, it just means you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't have sex, and you don't sleep to try to keep your flesh, your sins, under control. And, of course, that's not going to work. Now, these false heretics were claiming access to a visionary realm. This would refer to the Gnostics who talked about those hierarchy of angels and you get to fly through the spiritual realm, learning all your hocus-pocus. You know, I think it's helpful to understand this type, these type of heretics. They're all very similar. I used to read, I remember one time I couldn't understand Gnostics, and so I went to the library at the University of South Carolina and looked up some books on Gnosticism and started reading them. And I said, these old guys are saying the same thing. In other words, you could summarize Gnosticism very, very quickly. There's lots of different versions of it, but the essence of it is very similar. Worship of angels, asceticism, hatred of the body, deprecation of Christ. 
So they claim access to a visionary realm. Remember, if you've got your got the secret gnosis, the secret knowledge, that'll give you the password that you get through the first realm, which is guarded by a guardian angel. That angel will let you through, then you go through the next realm, that visionary realm, that spiritual realm, and then you get to the, you want to climb up to the next level. Oh, the next level is guarded by another angel. We have to give him a password. Well, what's the password? Well, we've got to, you know, snort a little cocaine, take a little LSD, float through the visionary realm and say some hocus pocus, get ourselves into a trance, let some demon reveal to us what the second password is, so then we can go to the second level, and so forth. Why would anybody want that instead of a life in Christ? Notice that these people are inflated, that means they're proud. The ascetic practices, as I said, were probably a false humility, according to a lot of translations. And here Paul says these people are inflated, they're proud, they're arrogant, they think they have the secret gnosis, the secret knowledge that nobody else has. And he says they are unspiritual. Well, they are unholy spiritual. They're full of demons. They're not unspiritual that way. People who have access to esoteric gnosis, they're going to naturally be proud. It's just just as natural as night follows day. Colossians 2.19. He, that's the Colossian heretic, doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. Not holding on to the head. The NIV Study Bible says the central error of the Colossian heresy is a defective view of Christ. As I said, it's either the angels and the asceticism and the legalism and the gnosis or it's Jesus. You can't have them both. They believe Jesus to be less than God and therefore they needed to worship those angels. But Paul says, no, Jesus is not less than God. Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his, all God's fullness dwell in him, dwell in Christ. Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. If you hold on to angels, you're not going to hold on to the head. I like that. Hold on. Hold on to the head. Hold on to Jesus. You know, we get ourselves in trouble. That's what we do, isn't it? We hold on tight. Like reminds me of Tony Evans wanting to chase his girlfriend, put her on a, when he was young, put her on a wild mouse, one of the most horrendous amusement park vehicles of terror that's ever been invented because I rode it once and I swore. I said, God, if you get me off this thing, I will never get on this thing again. And I never did. <laughs> but but he, he put his girlfriend on. His girlfriend was not responding to him, his advances the way he wanted, you know. So he put her on the wild mouse, and boy, she held on to the, his her future head. She held on because she was scared to death. Well, you get scared, you hold on to the head. Of course, we ought to hold on to him all the time. Hold on to to the head from whom the whole body, that, of course, that's the church. Jesus is the head, the church, the body's the church. Nourished and held together. How is the church held together? Held together by its ligaments and tendons. Well, the church is held together by all the gifts, the spiritual gifts that each individual members have, contributing to the body, to body life. And that's what holds us together, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the helpers, the worker of miracles, the speakers in tongues, the prophets, all these people. Hold the church together. There's only one thing in the world that will hold Christians together ultimately, and that's Jesus the head. Because you can have all the ligaments and tendons you want, but if you don't have a head, you don't have a brain in the body, well, guess what? The body's going to die. The ligaments and tendons are going to die. So we've got to hold on to Jesus. And the closer believers hold tight to their head, the closer they will be to each other. The the more that we allow the brain to direct the ligaments and tendons, the ligaments and tendons will be coordinated, holding the muscles and the bones together. The first thing that heretics do is drive Christians apart. So we need to hold on to the head. And that's what Paul's saying. These, these ascetic legalists, 
these Judaizers are going to split you guys wide open, wide open. I remember I had a good friend who had a church that had some hyperpreterist heretics who deny the resurrection of the dead. And by golly, it almost blew that church sky high. There was a few people left, and since then they've recovered nicely. They've got a thriving, believing, alive church now, and thank God. In fact, I've taught in that church, but I tell you, it almost went down because of these heretics. I've, I have watched over a couple of years period, I have watched heretics destroy people, destroy churches. You got to deal with heretics. If you got a heretic, and I mean some, I don't mean somebody disagrees with you on something, but I'm talking about somebody who denies a central doctrine of the gospel, something that would violate the Nicene Creed, for example, which would obviously therefore violate the Scripture. Something serious, like say they they believe that there's four persons in the Trinity and they're going to teach that. No, you got to you got to stop it, or your church will blow wide open. Paul is repeating this idea of holding together. As a body, Ephesians 4.16, he says the same thing. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So each ligament, each tendon works together, and the body becomes strong. We go to Colossians 2, verses 20 through 21. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Now, here's an interesting Greek thing that I've been wondering about for a long time. And while I was preparing this audio, I emailed my Greek tutor and he explained it to me perfectly. So I'm going, I don't know if you're interested, but I'm going to enlighten you on this. That if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of the world, shouldn't it be since you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of the world? Because it's obviously the Christians have died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world. So why is Paul leaving it open as a contingency? If that sounds like maybe you have died or maybe you haven't died, but this context here shows that of course they died to the elemental princes of the world. So why is it translated if? Well, John Gill says it should be translated since. The NIV Study Bible translates it as since. Since you died with the Messiah, since it's obvious. Well, it turns out that this in Greek is a first-class conditional and the first part of the phrase, the protasis, the if clause, is an assumption, is a statement that is assumed to be true for the sake of argument, but not necessarily true, just for the sake of argument. For example, Paul says, for if Christ, if Christ has not died, then something followed, then you of all men are most miserable, let's eat and drink and be merry. Well, in that case, if Christ has not died, well, that's obviously false. But we're going to assume it to be true for the sake of the argument that we can eat and drink and be merry. It's a rhetorical device. In that case, the if makes sense. You wouldn't use sense. But here, it's it's not, it's not obviously false. If Christ has not died, then we of all men are most miserable. That's obviously false. But here it says if you die with the Messiah. That's obviously true. So why wouldn't you say sense? Well, it turns out that strictly speaking, and this is a... A shift in the Greek translators since the time my Greek tutor, who was of the old school, he says that modern, more modern Greek people said that Paul used this as a rhetorical device and that it should always be translated if. And so most of the time you see if in, in the strict in the strict Greek translations. Well, I got curious about that, and I looked at a looser translation, the NIV, and by golly, they said since. I mean, we don't talk that way. We don't say if you are a Christian. Why are you drinking five quarts of liquor every day? We would say, since you are a Christian, we wouldn't make a hypothetical rhetorical argument out of it. If it's true that you're a Christian, then why are you drinking five quarts today? It's very formal English to say if. But more informally, we would say since. 
and the NIV says since. So we're going to say since. Since you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of the world. Now, if we've died with the Messiah, how do we die? That means our old man has died because since we're in union with Christ, that means what Jesus did, we did too. And Jesus died on the cross. We're in union with Jesus. We died on the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead. We rise again from the dead too in newness of life. Our new man rises. Our old man dies. Our new man rises. Romans 6, 3 expresses this dying to the Messiah. For do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? When you've been baptized into his death, that means you've been identified with his death. You died. To say it simply, since you have died to the law, because the elemental forces of this world is referring to regulations and legalism, since you died to the law, since you have died to the law, then why are you living as if the law still has jurisdiction over you? That doesn't make any sense, Paul says. That's the force of this verse here. Why do you live if you still belong to the world? Because the world loves legalism, folks. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. It doesn't make any sense because you're dead to all that. You died in the Messiah. Jesus died. You don't need laws and regulations to make you holy when Jesus has made you holy because you are in him. Now, this phrase, elementary forces of the world, I've told you it's legalism. It is. In every case in the New Testament, when you see the word stoicheion, it refers to legalism. By the context, you can tell. There is one exception. The earth will be burn up and well before i get into that let me let me go back i discussed this in the previous audio let me go back to colossians 2 verse 8 where paul uses the same phrase there he says be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on the elemental forces of the world elemental forces means the fundamental building blocks for example what's the elemental forces of a language the letters of an alphabet what's the elemental forces of a government a, a jurisdiction. It's the laws, because you have to have laws for the government and society to hold together. And so that's what its essential meaning is, but it means basically laws, despite all the wild translations that are used. For example, NIV, basic principles. We've died to the basic principles of the world. We've died to the rudiments of the world. That's the KGV, the youngest little translation, the American Standard Version. The Montgomery Version says, you have died to the crude notions of the world. The New American Bible says you have died to the elemental powers of the world. Well, what does that mean? NAS, New American Standard Bible says you've died to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? The Bible in basic English says you have died to the theories of the world. Does that make any sense? Darby translation says you have died to the elements of the world. And the good news, our God's Word translation says you have died to the world's way of doing things. That doesn't make any sense to me either. Well, let me read you some scriptures that show that it refers to legalism. Colossians 2.20, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of the world, that's the, the verse we're on now, why do you still live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Elemental forces of the world, regulations right there in the same verse, the context shows that the elemental forces are talking about legalist regulations. Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. Galatians 4.3 is obviously talking about legalism. That's what the whole chapter and the whole book, chapter of 4 of Galatians and the whole book of Galatians is talking about, legalism. Galatians 4.9, but now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Talking about, how can you turn back to the law? It's obviously the law. Second Peter 3.10, this is the controversial one, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements, stoicheion, will burn and be dissolved. And so we'll see, oh, well, that's the fundamental physical building blocks of the universe, the carbon, the oxygen, the hydrogen, the silicon, and so forth. Well, it could be. 
However, John Owen, a famous 16th century Cambridge professor and Puritan theologian, says that it refers to the fundamental building blocks of the Jewish order, the laws of the Jewish order. He says that just like all the other eight uses of stoicheion, the elements here is referring to the Jewish law that's going to burn up and be dissolved. Of course, that happened in AD 70 when the Jewish nation was destroyed by the Romans. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the word refers to elementary lessons of the outward world such as legal ordinances. John Gill says it refers to the ceremonial laws of the Jews. All right, so that's, I think, a pretty good case that shows that the elementary principles of the world is referring to the laws, all these regulations that these heretics were asking the Colossian Christians to submit themselves to. Now, when the heretic said, don't handle, don't handle what? Well, it could be, don't touch forbidden foods, don't enjoy your own goods, you should be in voluntary poverty like the medieval monks and ascend to own money, to own property, or don't handle unclean persons, don't touch a Gentile, in other words. And he says, don't touch, don't handle, don't touch is a similar idea, actually. Don't touch is some examples of don't handle, don't touch dead people. How about a woman having a period? Don't put your hand on your wife. Don't put your arm around your wife when she's menstruating. Don't touch the dead animals. If you're hunting deer, you see a deer and, you, and you've killed the deer, you can't touch it. Some people say that don't touch refers to not touching a woman in sexual intercourse. So that would mean you'd have to abstain from marriage. That's an extreme form of asceticism. By the way, this asceticism comes from a fundamental principle of Gnosticism. Gnostics say that the created world is evil. That's why God is way up there on top of those hierarchy of angels, because we're not going to get him close down here to the world, because the world is evil and God is good. And since the material world is created evil, that means that the body is evil. And two possible practices flow from that. One could be asceticism. Since the body is evil, we got to whip it into subjection by not allowing it to have sex, sleep, or food. The other possibility is to say, is to say well, since the body is evil, God's not going to redeem it, so God doesn't care what you do with it, so let's go out and eat, drink, and be merry, and have all the sex, and all the food, and all the sleep we want. Two opposite extremes, which of course both nonsense. This is serious business, folks, that Paul's talking about. And we have forms of asceticism today that are not as extreme. We have libertinism today, of course. It's not as extreme, but it's it's deadly. We need Jesus ahead of all this. Colossians 2, verses 22 and 23. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men, although these have a reputation of wisdom. By promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Now, actually, my version has all these with regulations in brackets. That's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. John Gill says, yeah, that's what the these refers to, all those legalistic ordinances, the meat that they weren't supposed to touch and handle and so forth. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. Well, food and drink is used up. You eat it and it's gone. So even if you don't add excessive regulation on top of the Mosaic law, even in the Mosaic law, law Moses was, was dealing with lesser things, things that are destroyed by being used up. 
John Gill says, even the ceremonial law, and I would say the law period, I wouldn't qualify by dividing the law up and saying ceremonial. I would just say the law. But John Gill says, even the ceremonial law being now abolished, though originally of God, yet the imposition of it is necessary to salvation, was a commandment and doctrine of man's. Now remember, Paul here in verse 22 says, these regulations are commands and doctrines of men as opposed to Christ. Paul is preaching the doctrine of Christ. These heretics are preaching the doctrines of men, made up by man. So they were a commandment and doctrine of man, Gill says, and they were particularly the traditions of the elders and the various rules and decrees which the doctors among the Jews obliged men to regard were human inventions and devices. Now, these regulations concerning things that are destroyed by being used up, Paul says, Matthew 15:17 Jesus expresses a similar sentiment he says don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated in other words why do you focus on food so much it's nothing god lasts forever food is very very temporary transitive uh, transitory it's it's gone 1 Corinthians 6.13a, Paul says, Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will do away with both of them. In other words, your stomach and what goes into your stomach are temporary. Paul is trying to show that legalism deals with ephemeral things, but Jesus is eternal. Paul says that these regulations have a reputation of wisdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the Middle Ages, everybody looked at these ascetic practices and thought the people were so holy when they hadn't eaten, hadn't slept for 20 days or whatever it is that they've done. They got a good reputation. Anti-Christian philosophies always look good to the world. Just look at the reputation of the petty little antichrist who teach and publish in the universities. I spent all my life in the university system. And oh, how the people would long to get published and to get their academic honors and to go to their conferences and have everybody suck up to them. Every time I'd see these things, I'd think, ooh, that's what the Pharisees did. That's what they looked like. The NIV has an interesting translation for ascetic practices which is in verse 23, reputation of wisdom of promoting ascetic practices. The NIV says self-imposed worship. The heretics made up their own worship. It did not come from God, as the NIV study Bible says. Self-imposed worship. That, again, reminds me of college professors and academics. So they have a reputation of promoting ascetic practices. They have a reputation of promoting humility. Well, the NIV translates it as false humility because ascetic practices do make one look humble. I mean, you got whip marks on your back, your ribs are sticking out because you hadn't eaten. Oh, my goodness, look how humble that person is. No, they're not humble. They're proud as they can be. They're proud of their asceticism, severe treatment of the body, whips, nails, hair shirts. All of these regulations are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Now, the classic example of this, this is when I was in, in at the University of South Carolina taking a history undergraduate degree and I love the Middle Ages history and so I was most of my courses were in that and I had a professor that was talking about medieval asceticism and he gave the example of a particular monastery it was very famous I forgot where it was but they were so strict with their rules that they would not allow any women in the monastery to cook or to clean and in fact they would not allow any female animals on the into the monastery because they didn't want anybody thinking about anything female even an animal so they kept the female animals out of the monastery and then the monks went to bed and dreamed about naked women all night you're never going to keep your flesh down by concentrate by being sin conscious i shall not touch this i shall not think this i shall not do this you, your flesh is incapable of making you holy only jesus living in you can make you holy
you know, if people would be less sin conscious and just say, get closer to Jesus, Jesus by his very nature is opposed to sin. And so if you have the nature of Jesus in you, you're going to naturally recoil against sin and you're going to be able to beat it. But if you try to do it in your own flesh without Jesus, I'm not going to look at that pornography that's on my computer. I'm not going to drink that substance or I'm not going to inject that substance. I'm going to go ahead. You're not going to make it. You're going to destroy yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, with that anti-legalistic screed, Paul finishes Colossians 2. Now, I forgot to give a name to this little section of scripture. I have named it to Gehenna with legalism, which I think expresses Paul's sentiments exactly. In Colossians 3, first part of the chapter, Paul talks about having put off the old man, and now it's time to walk as in the way that the new man ought to walk. We'll take that up in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.